confession of faith. That's what Jared is studying in our class. That's not it either. Oh, for Pete's sake. Was that maybe 269 or 67. Sixty-seven.
Good morning. Good to see you all here. It, it's fall. Did you know that? Did you notice that? It was hot yesterday, wasn't it? And today. John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Studies in the Confession, uh, taught by Jared uh, in our um, morning class, 9.30, right here where you sit. Again, if you've not been coming, make the effort well worthwhile. We get to bang some hard things around and learn from each other, and uh, Jared's doing an excellent job uh, teaching that class. Evening Bible study continues tonight at 6 p.m. Uh, we're in the Gospel of John. Coincidentally, uh, we, uh, I say that in quotes, we, uh, we studied the verse I just read uh, last Sunday night. Um, so come out and be with us at 6 p.m. Uh, we're studying through the Gospel of John, uh, finger foods and uh, soda. Uh, men's Bible study Tuesday, 10 a.m. at McLeod's. You'll see the note here on the mission conference, uh, October uh, 14, and uh, Dean Birch will be our speaker. Uh, I think they're hammering out the details uh, still yet on the, uh, on the dinner and, and things, but that uh, information will soon be posted on the board. You'll see the note there again on Samaritan's Purse. Um, all of a sudden, lots of need out there, uh, and uh, Fortunately, we, we have the Samaritan's Purse organization where we can trust that our donations will uh, get to the relief uh, needs. Okay. Uh, anything else that I've missed announcement-wise? Choir at 5. Choir at 5. So choir's back in session, so remember to get here at 5 o'clock. Uh, I see we had some visitors. I don't know if you have one of these little things in front of you. If you want to fill that out, you may. And you can either drop it in that little box there, the offering box, or hand it off to one of us, and we'll get to know you a little bit better that way. Um, but thanks for coming to see us today, and we hope you're blessed for being here. Um, 
All right, then, I'll direct you to the scripture for meditation in your Bible, Genesis chapter 6, read verses 1 through 13. Let's stand together and ask God to bless our service today. Ed, would you open for us today? Thanks.
Amen. Remain standing. Good morning. Take your brown hymnal and turn to number 87, 87 in the brown. for favorite hymns and give a reason and Dale had his hand up before he even sat down so <laughs> Dale you are up sir do you know the number America is beautiful 
America, America the Beautiful. I think it's in the brown. It's 572. <coughs> we have a reason this morning? suggest that you stand. You may stay seated, but if you feel the need. Yes, we do. Okay.
I don't see Ken here today, so I, I guess I'm on. So, um, Scripture reading this morning is found in Hebrews, the fifth chapter, and we'll read verses 1 through 10 together. If you'll stand, we will read together. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of his people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he had suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Ask that the Lord would bless the reading of his words. Take your brown hymnal again and turn to number 68, number 68 in the brown. Number 68, 68, yep, in the brown.
Our scripture text this morning is Hebrews chapter 5. Last Sunday, we began a new series entitled Believers Under Trial. We dealt in the first message with the fact that you and I are not unique in the things that we suffer. We noted the sources of our hurt, the sins of our past, either committed by us or done to us by others, taxed by the evil one, thirdly, the world system, its godless philosophy, goals and methods. Sometimes even the church is a source of our hurt. Jealousy, covetousness, gossip, things that shouldn't be in the church, but sometimes are. We noted that the natures of the trials that come our way, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, no temptation or trial has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. We noted from this that this, the tests that come our way are a proving trial. They're the test your spiritual metal, not to inform God, but to inform you of where you stand. They're common trials, the same things that all men experience. You're not unique. Number three, it's a limited trial. God is behind the trial and he's superior to the trial, governing every aspect, including how long, the time limit is up to him. And number four, it's going to be a victorious trial because a way of escape is provided by his grace. Today's dem dem study demonstrates that God hurts too. I mean, you think you have trials and you think, yeah, I'm unique. Have you ever thought that God hurts too? As we come to this study, Let's ask the Lord's enablement. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for Jesus Christ, the living word. Certainly we see in him the suffering that is possible for God, but we also think of all the scriptures we're going to look at today, which talks about God being grieved and sorrowful and in pain and all of those things that we don't normally think about. And I pray you will help us to see this. That once again, we are not unique. And that God has knows things experientially that we are going through ourselves. I pray that you will help us to understand. I help, pray that you will help us be encouraged by the truth of your word. By the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ who comforts us in our times of trials and points us repeatedly to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, in whose name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. We're looking at the subject this morning, God Hurts Too. Notice firstly in your bulletin outline that there are accusations that are brought against God. None of these are valid, but they're still broad. 
When we are hurting and there seems to be little or no relief, it is not unusual to hear God's people complain. Furthermore, the complaints we level at God run in several veins. Number one, we say things like, God doesn't know what I'm going through. I've said that. I've prayed that. I'm sure you have too. But Solomon issues this caution to his readers. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen. Rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven, you're on the earth, so let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. Ecclesiastes 5, the first three verses. Wise man Solomon says, you know, when you're talking to God or when you're Speaking about God, keep your words few, keep your ears open. It's not your task to inform God or to complain against God. It's your task to listen and to learn. Sometimes our complaint against God sounds like the wicked fool who makes no attempt to guard his speech when referencing God. The psalmist says, they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob pays no heed. Take heed, you senseless ones among the people. You fools, when will you become wise? Does he who implanted the ear not hear? Does he who formed the eye not see? Does he who disciplines nations not punish? Does he who teaches man lack knowledge? The Lord knows the thoughts of a man. He knows that they are futile. Blessed is the man you discipline, O Lord, the man you teach from your law. You grant him relief from days of trouble till a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not reject his people. He will never forsake his inheritance. Psalm 94, verses 7 and following. So whatever your circumstance, whatever your trial, be assured that God has taken note of it. Last week we saw he is in the trial and he is superior to the trial. When a favor arose in Egypt who knew nothing of how Joseph had saved the nation through his wisdom and intervention in the days of a great famine, He became fearful of the population explosion among the Israelites living in the province of Goshen. And so he began a policy of systematic genocide, which consisted of three phases. Number one, he placed slave masters over the Israelites who oppressed them with forced labor. We read, But the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied and spread. Exodus 1, verse 12. He was trying to literally work them to death, but that didn't work. Secondly, phase two, 
Pharaoh instructed the Jewish midwives concerning the birth of Jewish children, if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. Well, the midwives, who are Israelites, refused to comply. So we read, the people increased and became even more numerous. Exodus 1 verse 20. Phase 3. Pharaoh outright ordered all Egyptians, here it is, every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Well, guess what? His own daughter disobeyed him when, as a princess of Egypt, she rescued and raised Moses as her own child. And then as an adult, Moses chose identity with his own people. I mean, he fled Egypt after rescuing a fellow Israelite by killing the Egyptian who was abusing him. But my question is, where was God in all this? Exodus 2, verse 23 and following says, During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and they cried out and their cry for help went up to God. And God heard their groanings and he remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and he was concerned about them. So God knew. God had been watching all along. And God was concerned. A second accusation we bring is that God doesn't care what I'm going through. Again, the psalmist says, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. Psalm 13, the first three verses. Another psalm says, Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am faint. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in anguish. How long, O Lord? How long? Turn, O Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. No one remembers you when he's dead. Who praises you from the grave? I'm worn out from groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Psalm 6 verses 2 through 7. Now these references to God's delay in coming, coming to and the aid of the psalmist, is his way of saying that God has placed him, the psalmist, on the back burner. In his memory bank and doesn't much care what is happening to him. Have you ever made similar accusations against God? God has forgotten what I'm going through. He is silent. He is uninvolved. 
Nothing changes. This has gone on for too long. I see no help coming from God. He must not care. That's the accusation we bring. Third accusation is this. Even God can't help me now. Even God can't help me. This sometimes follows from the former accusation. When a trial has gone on for a long time and you have prayed for relief time and time again, the evil one comes to us with a suggestion that not only does God not know what you are experiencing and does not care <coughs> what you are experiencing, if he does know, but in the end, God cannot intervene to make things better. In the midst of a terrible drought, Jeremiah prayed this prayer. O hope of Israel, its Savior in times of distress, why are you like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who stays only at night? Why are you like a man taken by surprise, like a warrior powerless to save? You are among us, O Lord, and we bear your name. Do not forsake us. Jeremiah 14, <clears throat> verse 8 and 9. You know, desperation can be heard in the psalmist's cry. Yet for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, O Lord! Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We're brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up. Help us. Redeem us because of your unfailing love. Psalm 44, verse 22 through 26. I want you to note that all of these accusations against God digress. They go from bad to worse. God doesn't know. God doesn't care. And God can't help. He can't help. Down, down, down. And you can be sure that Satan will be right there <laughs> to drive you on to despair. You see, behind these, these notions, or these accusations, is the notion God cannot be sympathetic to our pain because he is immune from such himself. In this supposition, we use the transcendence of God against him. We say something like, well... God is so far above us, so distant from his creation, that to say of God that he feels our pain is ludicrous. God cannot possibly enter into our experience precisely because he is God. And as such, he's above the ills that plague mankind. 
But let us not forget that mankind was created in the image of God. God puts it this way. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Genesis 1 verse 26. Now this is different than idolatry. In idolatry, man fashions God into his image. Or more accurately, what we want God to be. The end product looks very much like man in all of his limitations because of our sin. But then God becomes someone we can relate to, we think, because he's just like us. But you know the biblical truth is that God made you, you and me, God made man in his image, in his likeness. Listing as one of those characteristics the truth that man is the designate ruler over the creation, the fish, the birds, the livestock, and so on. What does it mean to be created in the image or likeness of God? Well, it has nothing to do with how God looks. Jesus taught God is a spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. John 4, verse 24. Well, a spirit has no corporal body, and so it has no material image. So the image of God in man has nothing to do with how God looks. It has to do with his personality. A self-awareness that distinguishes him from the fish, the fowl, the animals over which he rules. The three distinguishing marks of human beings bearing the image of God in our personality are, number one, the ability to think and reason. Come, God says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool, Isaiah 1. Verse 18, animals, including the primates, cannot reason with God. They cannot think and interact with the Creator. Oh yeah, with treats, you see animal trainers train animals to do certain things, but they have no cognitive abilities. That's why man is more than animal. Secondly, to be of God's personality is the ability to make decisions, to exercise a will to choose a course of action. Again, animals operate on instinct. They have a built-in ability to sense danger, to say satisfy hunger, to be fearful. And their responses to such are predictable and unalterable. They will always do a certain conduct based upon their, their nature. But they don't sit there and reason things out. They instinctively respond. Number three in our personality is the ability to feel things emotionally and to sympathize with life's various thrills 
and heartaches. And again, animals work on instinct. I used to own a St. Bernard. Have you ever seen a St. Bernard's eyes? They're baggy and they hang way down and they always look sad. And people would come and visit and they'd say, oh, Durfadon was the dog's name. Donna's name and my name put written backwards. Durfadon looks so, look how sad he looks. He didn't, he wasn't sad. <laughs> that was a physiological aspect of a St. Bernard. Red bloodshot eyes that drooped. Built into the species. What is built into us is the ability to sympathize. To be thrilled. To be frightened. To be sorrowful. To be happy. To be sad and to be able to express various types of emotion. My point in all this is that as you analyze yourself and others, knowing that you have all of these traits, reasoning ability, decision-making capability, the ability to feel pain, sorrow, heartache, and so on, since the pattern for your personality was none other than God himself, it is ludicrous to suggest that God, because he is God, is immune from these things, particularly the last one, the ability to experience true emotional, mental stress from heartache, pain, suffering, and the like. You feel these things because God feels them. You feel these things because you have been created in the likeness of God. With, its with his personality that distinguishes mankind from all the brute beasts of the field. I believe we are willing to concede this of Jesus because, as we have in our text this morning, Hebrews 5, verse 7 and 8 says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears hmm, to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Hebrews 5, verse 7 and 8. We are ready to grant that of Christ. We remember the hatred of the Jewish authorities, the indifference of Governor Pilate, the flogging of Jesus, the spittle, the crown of thorns, the head heavy wooden cross, the nails, the spear thrust into his side, the blood, the water. We admit, yes, Jesus understands what it's like to live in a cursed world, in a wicked world, and to endure the mockery of the world. Yes, well, God understands what it's like to lose a child. To see him tortured beyond recognition. You see, we think Jesus' ability to sympathize with us 
in our pain and sorrow has more to do with his shared humanity with us than with his distinction as Emmanuel, that is God with us. In short, Jesus feels, but God cannot. Jesus can empathize, but not God. This is why I had you read the Genesis account of the context of Noah's flood. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. Genesis 6, verse 5 and 6. Grief and pain, the two-pronged pitchfork which plagues our existence and makes life unbearable at times. And here it is said of God. Again, 1 Samuel 15, verse 11. God is speaking. He says, I'm grieved that I have made King Saul because he was turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Well, Samuel was troubled, and he cried out to the Lord all that night, 1 Samuel 15, verse 11. God is grieved, and Samuel is troubled. Because of David's sin of numbering the people, God sent an angel to inflict death on the very source of strength that David had chosen over the Lord to protect him. But seeing the anguish, the judgment caused, we read, when the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand! 2 Samuel 24, verse 16. For God spoke through Hosea the prophet. We catch a glimpse of his pathos for a sinning people. And we hear regret and sorrow in his words. He says, I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? Swords will flash in their cities. will destroy the bars of their gates. And put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. If, even if they call to the Most High, He will by no means exalt them. Now if that were the end of the passage, it wouldn't be very comforting to read. But he goes on to say, How can I give you up, Ephraim? Ephraim is another name for Israel. How can I give you up? Now he's just said he's going to do it. He's, he's just said he's going to allow the sword to come upon his own people. But now he's contemplating. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? These were cities that were destroyed in the plain of Sodom and Gomorrah, when Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. Two smaller cities. So he's, he's arguing with himself, how can I do this? 
He answers himself, My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. Hosea 11, verses 4 through 8. And then you and I think that it is a little matter to God when we or our loved one is determined to run from God and plunge ourselves into a life of sin. Isaiah reminisces, I will tell of the kindness of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised, according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things he has done for the house of Israel, according to his compassion and many kindnesses. He said, surely they are my people, sons who will not be false to me. And so he became their savior. In all their distress, he too was distressed. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Yet they rebelled and they grieved the Holy Spirit. So he turned and he became their enemy. And he himself fought against them. Isaiah 63, verses 7 and following. We too are warned as part of our new covenant acknowledgement. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Ephesians 4 verse 30. Now all of these scriptures teach us that God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and along with God the Son, enter into our pain and distress. They're grieved and they experience sorrow and pain when we as their people refuse God's leadership and spurn his commands. God hurts over the same issues that bring hurt into your life. The physical suffering of persecution or of death. At the death of Lazarus, his friend, the grief In the moment with Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters. Yes, yes, he goes. Comes into their world. And he says, where have you laid him? Speaking of Lazarus, of course. Come and see, Lord. We are told. Then Jesus wept. And so intensely that the crowd standing by said, Oh, see how he loved him. God hurts over the same issues that bring hurt into your life. Physical sorrow and death. The indifference of those we love and trust. The betrayal of loyalty, the ending of friendships and devotion, the failure to remember and appreciate the kindnesses we have done for the very ones who now turn against us, the rejection of his overtures of love and compassion, preferring instead to be hard-hearted and stubborn. All this and more 
moves the heart of Christ. God even grieves and laments over things that we, as fellow sinners, have no authority to enact. The judgment of the wicked, as in the days of Noah, which resulted in the worldwide flood. The chastening of his own people for their rebellion, those times when God actually became Israel's enemy and fought against them. So we say, well, why then would God do these things if... In the very doing, he's distressed and grieved. The answer is that God is committed to justice. He is committed to righteousness, even if it means temporal judgment for sin. His impeccable character will not permit him to look the other way or gloss over what he knows will damn you to hell. There's salvation in but one way. Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Ezekiel 33, verse 11. Can you not hear his pain? Can you not hear his reluctance to pass the death sentence? He gives them the cure. The cure is repentance. But few there are who will walk down that humbling and self-effacing path. Thirdly, sin and rebellion are the cause of all pain and suffering in us and in God. Let me say it again. Sin and rebellion are the cause of all pain and suffering. Let's be careful here to put our finger on the real cause of all the pain and sorrow. It has nothing to do with a God who has failed us, but everything to do with we who have failed God. God placed Adam and Eve in a pristine, perfect, sinless environment. Eden was their home. Their very, every need was provided for them. Sin was not in the picture. There were no thorns. There were no weeds in their garden. There were no worms in their fruit. No aches in their bodies. No deterioration or atrophy in their mental or physical prowess. They were young. They were vibrant. They were strong. God's grace and provision smothered them with love. And then Satan successfully tempted them to believe his lie and deny God's truth and everything, everything irreversibly changed for the worst. They could not undo their sin of rebellion their traitorous, traitorous betrayal of God's command. They died spiritually. The race died in them. Judgment ensued. God cursed the environment. He cursed Adam and his headship over creation. He cursed Eve and brought pain into the birthing process. 
physical pain, emotional pain, mental pain, spiritual pain, indeed all pain, all suffering. You cannot think of one sorrow, one malady, one loss, one reversal of good fortune, one heartache that does not have its roots in sin. And that root root has grown into an all-encompassing weed tree that chokes the God life out of every human being and leaves us morally bankrupt and hostile towards each other and towards God. Sin is a killer. It has killed all. All are dead in trespasses and sins. It cannot be mollified. It is responsible for all your pain all my pain for God's pain too. Only Jesus' blood and righteousness can right this wrong and bring forgiveness and healing to your hurting soul. So to ease God's pain and yours, the first thing we need to do is end the denial. God said to his people, surely, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor is his ear too dull to hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt, your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads his case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments and speak lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. Their deeds are evil deeds. Their feet rush into sin. They're swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts Our evil thoughts, ruin and destruction mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads. Righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. We look for brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like men without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we're like the dead. We all growl like bears. We moan mournfully like doves. We look for justice, but find none. For deliverance, but it's far away. For our offenses are many in your sight. And our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us. And we acknowledge our iniquities. Isaiah 59, verse 1 and following. What is God saying? He's saying, don't blame me for your trouble. Blame yourself. There's nothing wrong with my strong arm. But I'm not going to rescue you so you can continue on sinning against me and your fellow man. The sooner we stop denying our role in our problems, 
the sooner we will experience the remedial and healing intervention of our God. Blame shifting doesn't make it with God. As he knows our heart, and he knows our actions, he knows our thoughts, and every word we utter. Secondly, pray believing and pray truthfully. All those psalms that we read today where the author was saying, How long, O Lord? Those were prayers. They were prayers. That's what psalms are. Psalm 44 suggested that God was asleep. O Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. God, you're sleeping on the job. Would you pray that way to God? I would say to the psalmist, hey, you better bite your tongue. Do you know who you're talking to here? But the other side of the coin is this, that God is not impressed with flowery speech and carefully crafted phraseology. What impresses God is sincerity, honesty, faith with respect. James put it this way, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But, but when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded and unstable in all he does. James 1. Verse 5 through 8. So when we pray, we pray boldly. We pray confidently. And we pray believing that God hears and will answer. And then thirdly, I would say, trust God's timing. Solomon writes, I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 17. Luke tells us that because of attempts on his life, newly converted Saul was shipped off to Tarsus. And then the church, he goes on to say, throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria, enjoyed a time peace. Reading on, it was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Acts 9 verse 31. So what I am saying here is trust God's timing. Be patient. God has not forgotten you in your sorrows or in your trials. He has experienced these things along with you, but he is patient to a fault, and we can thank God he is. We were talking in the adult class this morning, what if God were a wrathful God rather than a good God? What if he were wicked instead of holy? With all the power that we see in the scriptures about God's omniscience, his omnipotence, 
All of those things that he can do, if you attach the word wicked, if that was his character, and he brought all of that power to his wicked nature, where would you and I be today? We would be a pile of ashes. And our soul would be tormented in hell forever. But he's a good God. A righteous God. What he accomplishes in terms of chastisement and punishment is to make you strong. To build you up in the faith. To keep your eyes focused upon Christ and his graciousness and God's goodness to his people. That we would always pray and not faint, the scripture says. I pray to God with more boldness because he's a good God. As a child that comes before Heavenly Father, if I ask him for bread, he's not going to give me a rock. That's our God. Don't be guilty of charging God with not caring, not knowing, oh, and God forbid, that he can't do anything about where you are in your life, spiritually, physically, or otherwise. God knows he cares, and he can and does do It's not always what we want done, but it's always what's good for us in the end. We can praise him for that. He's a father that cares for children that he loves. He's not out to beat you. He's out to strengthen you and keep you close by his side. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that God also hurts We cannot sit here this morning and say, well, God doesn't know, or God doesn't care, or worse, that he can't do anything about my troubles. Indeed, he's in the troubles. Life is not a bowl of cherries. It does have pain and suffering. And you use those pains and that suffering to make us more like Jesus Christ, longing more for heaven's bliss rather than earth's fake treasures. Even Moses understood that about the treasures of Egypt. He left Pharaoh's household because he recognized, even as an earthly man, even in his earthly wisdom, he recognized that the treasures of Egypt were just temporary. And he was seeking for a city whose builder and maker was God. He was seeking a better place. We need to seek that as well. So we keep our focus on Christ and on his glory and pray believing and pray with faith, trusting you to bring us through every trial for your name's sake and for our good. And we give you thanks. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the hymnal, the Brown Book, number 67. Let's stand together as we sing.
Number 67 in the Brown Hymnal. you the choir is at five o'clock today and then tonight is our study downstairs in the fellowship hall we bring finger foods and have a little luncheon and we're studying the gospel of john and i'm teaching tonight on uh, aspects of john 15 john 14 15 16 and 17 those chapters are the last will and testimony of christ before he died they're extremely important chapters what would you tell your children if you had a chance to tell them before you were going to die? 
You know, in the Old Testament, they did that. You would see, for instance, Jacob gather all of his kids together around his bed, and he'd say something like, I'm about ready to die, so here's I got some important things to say to you. And then he would bless them with the things that he had to say. Well, Jesus did the same thing with his disciples. They're in the upper room or they're in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's teaching them these final thoughts. That's what we're studying on Sunday night. Thank you for being here. Trust that the Lord will bless your life. And we'll see you tonight. Amen.